Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the chair in front of you. It looks like this. You can go and grab that and go to page 859, and you'll find Matthew chapter 5. The 5 is the big number. That's the chapter number, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So when I say Matthew 531, big number 5, small number 31, if this is your first time looking at a Bible. Matthew 531, and we are going to go all the way to verse 32. So Matthew 5, 31, and 32 this morning, we're covering um, one topic. Let's read God's word, or let's hear, hear the word of the Lord as I read Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray with our Bibles open before us that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. We ask, Father, that you would show us your glory, your kindness, your goodness, your truth, and your righteousness. We pray that you would soften our hearts towards your righteous word. Give us not only a resolve to obey and to uphold the truths of your word, but give us a heart of humility, of poverty in spirit, a hunger and thirsting for righteousness, knowing that within ourselves we lack it and we need your help. So, Father, we pray that you would give us strength to meditate on these words and to have it change and transform our lives. We pray that you would convert those who don't trust in Christ yet savingly. And we pray, Lord, for those who are particularly affected by divorce. We ask, God, that you would give them your kind comfort and grace and strength now as we think about truths and as we relish your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read to you an article, it's a short article, called Feminism, the Enlightenment, and No-Fault Divorce. On September 4, 1969, Governor Ronald Reagan signed California's Family Law Act, the nation's first no-fault divorce statute. The law emerged from an almost decade-long research project conducted by the Governor's Commission on the Family, which had the goal, here's the goal of the commission, ironically, of strengthening California's marriages and reducing the state's skyrocketing divorce rate. The commission's first recommendations included several measures which might have proven effective. Mandatory pre-divorce counseling, a marriage hospital providing various rehabilitative services, and a separate family court charged with handling divorce proceedings. In the end, however, the State Assembly reduced California's divorce law reform to a single provision, the elimination of fault as a consideration in divorce proceedings. Before I continue the article, just so you know, so before that you had to prove adultery or abandonment or some sort of abuse before you could actually legally get a divorce before this law. 
Continuing the quote, uh, the article, before 1969, every state in America based divorce on some fault in one or the other spouse. Heirs of the Christian tradition, early Americans understood marriage to be ordained by God for the benefit of the espoused and of society as a whole. As such, both the church and the state had a vested interest in making sure marriages were not dissolved without sufficient reason. By 1969, many factors had colluded to erode that concept of marriage. Two of them were Enlightenment libertarianism and radical feminism. Before the Enlightenment, Western cultures understood marriage to have four different but complementary aspects. It was a covenant between two people, a spiritual association solemnized and shepherded by the church, a social estate recognized and encouraged by the state, and a natural institution springing from the very order of human society. In the 17th and 18th centuries, Enlightenment thinkers introduced a new theology of marriage, which defined it exclusively as a voluntary sexual contract between consenting adults. The essence of marriage, they argued, was neither in its natural, nor its social, nor even its spiritual aspects, but solely in the voluntary bargain struck by two parties. The terms of this bargain were not legislated by either natural law or scripture. They were set by the parties themselves, who thus had the right to honor, amend, or revoke them as they saw fit. In time, these freedom of contract and sexual privacy notions fueled the drive for no-fault divorce laws, in which no better reason than one spouse's claim of irreconcilable differences would be needed to dissolve a marriage. With the publication of Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of, of Woman in, 19, in 1792, feminism was born. Though she argued for many legitimate causes, including educational reform, equal suffrage, and even the abolition of abortion, feminism started with the abolition of abortion, Wollstonecraft also called certain marriages a form of legal prostitution. By the 1960s and 1970s, Wallstonecraft's followers had turned her polemic into an enthusiastic celebration of divorce. It was, they said, a perfectly legitimate escape for frustrated, disappointed, and adventurous women tired of being tied down by the oppressive patriarchy of their husbands. Said one writer, quote, your divorce can turn out to be the very best thing that ever happened to you, end quote. Within a few years, feminists had succeeded in making divorce on demand the law in all 50 states. Years later, Ronald Reagan said he regretted signing the no-fault divorce bill, and for good reason. No-fault divorce has contributed to the dissolution in the U.S. of 40 to 50% of all first marriages and 60% of second marriages. Rather than bringing promised liberation, divorce leaves women 20 to 30% poorer than before marriage. Children living with divorced mothers experience a dreadful 38% poverty rate compared with 11% for children in two-parent homes. Experts also point to the long-term emotional trauma and deficit in social skills exhibited by children of divorce. In the face of such tragedy, the church is often alone pick, pick, in picking up the pieces. In addition to teaching about preventing divorce through healthy marriages, pastors can help develop a community marriage policy by building a coalition of churches who require premarital counseling as a prerequisite to marriage. Finally, church representatives can support reform of divorce laws in the representative states that would make no-fault divorces illegal or more difficult to obtain. These measures just might be the first step in restoring the stability of the home. So writes 
Kairos Journal on no-fault divorce. The truth of the matter, the reality of the matter in Los Angeles and in our country today is that marriage is in shambles. It's completely in shambles. People can't even define what marriage is these days. They're confused on that point. And it's not a new problem in the last eight years or the last four years or since 2015 and the Obergefell decision in the Supreme Court granting legalized gay marriage in 50 states. This has been a problem a long time in coming, as I just read. My fear with this is... Could it be that we as Christians and we as a church are unintentionally contributing to the breakdown of marriage in our society? Not intentionally, but unintentionally. Can our church and our members, can we actually be contributing to the breakdown of marriage and the weakening of marriage without even knowing it? Because we're living in 2018 and we're part of a history, we're part of a country with a history, and we are affected by this history in large measure unaware. I wasn't born in 1969. And yet, that has largely shaped the context in which I, was, which, I, which I live in, which I've lived in ever since I was born. So will we be those who continue to unintentionally contribute to the breakdown of marriage, or will we be peacemakers who are righteous? Like it says here, blessed are the peacemakers. Are we going to be those righteous peacemakers who channel God's goodness into a broken and confused culture? Which will we be? Will God's design for marriage win out in the end? We can't know for sure in our culture, but we do know our responsibility before the Lord. I have been convicted in seeing how I, even as a pastor, in the past have contributed to the belittling of marriage in my life unintentionally. It wasn't until 2014 when I did a study on marriage that I realized how I might have unintentionally been um, contributing to the breakdown of marriage And so God has used his word to transform me, and I trust that this morning, if you haven't thought about it, that God might use the word this morning to transform your hearts and minds so that you don't unintentionally contribute to the further erosion of marriage, but you rather um, become an agent of peacemaking and bringing truth and light and salt and healing to um, a broken world. So here's the main goal. Hunger for righteous marriage so that you may have God's kingdom and shine his light. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 5.20, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And part of having a suppressing righteousness, we've been talking about things we talked about last week. Don't just, don't just not murder. You shouldn't be sinfully angry, right, with your brother or sister. And don't just not commit adultery, but don't lust after another person who is not your spouse. Those were two things we covered last week. And that is the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. It goes beyond the letter of the law, which you need to keep the letter of the law, but it goes into the heart as well. And so same thing here with marriage and divorce. So we need to hunger for a righteous view, a righteous view, a righteous support, and a righteous practice of marriage. All right? That would be my main call this morning. Hunger for, for hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Hunger for a righteous view, support, and practice of marriage. And you don't need to be married to apply this message in your life. And I'll tell you why when we get to our application. If we're going to hunger for a righteous view, we need to, first of all, reject the culture's accepted view of marriage and divorce. So go to verse 31. Look at verse 31 in your Bible, Matthew 5, 31. It says, Jesus, or Matthew writes, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife 
must give her a notice of divorce. So we're not talking about 2018. Let's go back to Jesus' time and Jesus' culture in Galilee, in Israel, in the land of Canaan in 32, 31 A.D. When Jesus is saying these words, what was the divorce culture like? What was the marriage culture like in Jesus' day? Well, Jesus gives us a clue. He quotes Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So put your finger here in Matthew 5 and go back in your Bible to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It's in the beginning of your Bible. It's the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now pay attention to the wording here because the wording that Jesus quoted is, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Must? Is that what the text says? So go back to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and it says this, if a man marries a woman but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now, does it say he must or he may? He may. It's not a command in the text. It's a concession to, well, he's permitted to. He's conceding the point here. He may do that. If after leaving his house, so there's like three ifs here. If he is displeased with her, something, it says here, something displeasing, something she does becomes displeasing to him, and that's really something indecent. It's really a vague term. That's actually where a lot of debate happens, and I'll fill that out in a second. If there's something indecent in the man's wife, he may write her a certificate of divorce. If he does that, verse 2, if after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her and writes her a divorce certificate and hands it to her, um, and sends, sends her away from his house, or if he dies, so those are if, okay? If the first husband divorces, and then if the second man marries her, and then he divorces her, or if he dies, then, that's the if, now what's the then? Verse four, then what? Then the first husband who sent her away may not what? May not marry her again after she has been defiled because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay, so a few ifs. If the first husband divorces her because there's something indecent in her, and if the second husband divorces her or dies, then, yeah, then the first husband may not remarry her. That is the the text. That's what the the passage is saying. So... um, a few things here. First, let's talk about what something indecent is. It says here, she becomes displeasing to him. And if you have a footnote in the CSB, it says, she does not find favor in his eyes. Or another translation might say, if there's something indecent about her. Now, with the precise meaning of something indecent, there was a split in the Jews between the school of Shammai and the, the conservative school of Shammai and the liberal school of Hillel. The former restricted it to unchastity. When he says something indecent, it means that she has committed adultery or sexual immorality. And if she's done that, the the husband may write her a certificate of divorce. Now, the other side, the liberal school of Hillel, they said that it included her burning toast in breakfast. If she burned the toast, that is legitimate grounds. That is something indecent. And he may write her a certificate of divorce. Accordingly... There soon developed a great disparity, you could see, between the two schools here 
in Judaism concerning divorce. And given the fallenness of human nature and the selfishness of humans in their sin, it is easy to see how the interpretation of Hillel won the day among men. That's what one New Testament commentator wrote. And so you see um, that divorce was permitted under something indecent, and uh, Jesus is, is, is wanting to pull this out and say, you know what, you guys have heard in your culture, in your Jewish culture, that, that someone must write a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that's not the case. That's not exactly what you guys have been taught. So Jesus is so, I mean, we look at Deuteronomy 24, we see this is not encouraging divorce. It's conceding divorce. It's actually discouraging divorce. You can't just flippantly divorce your wife and then she comes back around and then you can marry her again. No, no. If you divorce her, you can't remarry her. You better think about this before you just very flippantly and very hastily just get divorced. You see how that, this, this law would, would discourage just a flippant way of divorcing. Secondly, it's not a command. It's a concession. He's not saying you must get a divorce uh, under the, the indecency, but that you may. Okay, that was marriage in that context. Let's go back to Matthew 5. Now, what about marriage in our context? I just shared with you no-fault divorce, right? No-fault divorce passed in 1969. And do laws affect culture? Yes. yes, they do, right? Laws affect culture, and culture affects beliefs and plausibility structures. What you think is, you know, like, is, is, would anyone in America today tolerate slavery of any ethnic people group in America as legal? No, it is implausible today for the same slavery that is part of our horrific past as a country. It would be intolerable today. It's implausible today. Now, if this was 1718, would it be plausible? Absolutely. In other words, the laws of the land and the culture you live in does affect what you would find plausible or implausible. Whether you know it or not, before you were born, the, the, the land that you enter into and the life you live in the place you live, those laws affect the culture, and those cultures affect your beliefs. Now, we got the Bible, praise the Lord, to try to break out of it, but it's not so simple all the time, all right? So, laws affect culture, culture affects beliefs, and beliefs affect action. So, in other words, laws matter. So, no-fault divorce did affect our country and our beliefs about marriage. Laws don't change the heart, so the mission of the Christian church is not to change laws. Laws don't convert people to Christ, but laws can strengthen or weaken God's common grace in a human society, right? Good laws, righteous laws can strengthen common grace, and bad laws, unjust laws, foolish laws can hurt human society. What are some of the effects of divorce? I read it to you earlier. 20, women are 20 to 30% on average poorer after divorce than before divorce. We already said that children of divorce are at a 38% poverty rate compared to 11% of children in two-parent homes. Listen to some of these effects on children of divorce. Children are more likely to have long-term emotional trauma, deficit in social skills, more stress, loneliness, inner confusion, forced feelings of being an adult too soon, having to grow up too soon, live in two worlds of both parents, if, going back, if, if they are connected to both parents, going back and forth between two parents, and the parents really separate into two separate worlds, and then the children have to learn how to live in two different worlds. And they learn to become early moral forgers, forging their own morality from two homes. And they learn to become divided selves as they try to fit into two separate parental realms. They often fail to be religious or active in church because their parents do not provide for them a shared vision of the world. Children of divorced parents are more likely to drop out of high school, 
become pregnant as teenagers, and spend time in prison compared to children in intact families. Is it affecting our culture? Absolutely. And then you have the rise of prenuptial agreements, right? Prenup. Making provisions in the case of divorce. So just in case we get divorced, let's make some agreements so that, so that as I commit to you, I'm not like fully committed to you. When you make provisions in the case of divorce, in, in case you get divorced, that increases the option of divorce when you guys fight, right? That increases the option and decision to divorce when marriage gets difficult because every marriage gets difficult, amen. right? We got, we got one amen. Every marriage gets difficult. And the others of you are just too scared to say amen, right? <laughs> but <laughs> they're all thinking it. Thanks, Lance. You're speaking up for all of us. Every marriage gets difficult. Um, don't believe the lies of social media and even Sunday-only gatherings when you see marriages at church and you see the happiness of the marriages, generally speaking. That's not to say that there, there isn't real happiness, but there are real struggles in every marriage. Marriage does get difficult. And if you have a prenuptial agreement... Prearranged in case you get a divorce, it makes the option more plausible, more possible. It increases the likelihood. Wedding vows are taken lightly in our culture today, aren't they? One Hollywood actress vowed in the ceremony to make, this is her vow in the wedding vows, to make her betrothed his favorite banana milkshake, while he promised to split the difference over the thermostat settings in the home. That's part of the wedding vows. One lady from North Carolina wrote in 2015, I don't like the word vows in the context of weddings. A vow is like a promise, and whether we like it or not, promises are easy to break. I prefer the word intentions because it gives you a clear view of my side of things and my way of thinking. What I intend to do is what is important, how I intend to treat you right now and for the rest of my life. This is just truth. I can't see into the future. I can't see all of the ways we will inevitably hurt one another. I can't see how our love is going to grow and morph into hopefully this bigger, even stronger thing than it is today at our wedding. What I can see is how I want to treat you and how I intend to love you. Here's what I wrote as my marriage intentions. All right, so here's her marriage intentions. If any of you who I do future weddings say, why don't you let me write my own vows? Here's a clue. <laughs> here's what I wrote as my marriage intentions. Your love is like an electric current running straight through my heart. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes I look at you and I feel really full, like a balloon stretched to its limits, but in a good way. <laughs> Your love is solid ground beneath my feet. It is an arm around my shoulder and the kind of hug that makes all of my worries melt away. All of your worries melt away. Your love is my bread and water. It is a snowball fight in the winter and the sunshine sinking deep into my skin on a warm summer day. It is the adrenaline of climbing down a steep cliff and standing next to a freezing waterfall with its roaring, with its roar pounding in my ears. Your love is chicken noodle soup when I'm sick and macaroni and cheese when I'm sad. Your love is so big that I never knew I could want it or that it could ever be in my reach. I intend to be those things for you. I intend to support you in your decisions, in your choices, in your life. I intend to help you continue to learn and improve and to do the same so that we can always be the best versions of ourselves for one another. I intend to love you hard, unconditionally, and openly as much more than I do today, which is a lot, by the way. Marriage intentions. People 
just once. You see that the watering down of what, what marriage is. The reason why I don't let married couples write their own vows is because they don't know what they're getting into. Amen. Right? They ha- <laughs> Your wife's not here today. Where is she? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just kidding, brother. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, but no, but Lance is absolutely right. Like, and that's, that's why I do what I do. Like, like that you have, like, when I look at newlyweds, like, you have no idea. I mean, I've only been married since 2005, so 13 years, and I don't even know the half of it. I see the older mar- married couples in our church, and you teach me. So as, I, as, we, as we younger married couples watch you, but, but newlyweds, I mean, when they're about to get married, they have no idea what they're getting into. You don't know what's a promise. You don't, you don't even know what you're getting into. And so you need those who've gone before you to tell you what you need to promise, what you need to vow, because this is an important deal. We are not wise in our own eyes, or we at least not to count ourselves wise in our own eyes. Today, people just want their loved ones to be happy, right? Not thinking about whether true happiness is tied to actual holiness, holy joy in the triune God. And then in our American context, wasn't marriage redefined? Marriage has been redefined, right? Right? In 2015, in the Obergefell decision, 10 years and one day after my marriage, marriage is now, Brian Anderson says, marriage is now an intense emotional relationship between consenting adults who desire a legal agreement to be married. It's just two consenting adults. Whatever gender, doesn't matter. It's just two consenting adults who have an intense emotional relationship and want to be, quote, married. Now, According to natural law, it's not just the, this is not the Bible now, but it lines up with the Bible. According to natural law, here's one natural law definition of marriage. If you're trying to talk about it with non-Christians, this might be a good one. I might send a PDF to the church just so you guys could think about it more in terms of defining marriage and defending it in your conversations. Here's how, he, here's how Ryan Anderson defends it. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman to each other as husband and wife to be father and mother to any children their sexual union produces. That's just a natural law definition of marriage. Okay, so it's a man and a woman uniting as husband and wife to be father and mother to any children their sexual union produces. That's natural. I mean, if you, you're united, you get pregnant, you have a baby, you have father and mother, that's, that's just naturally what happens, right? The norms of marriage are monogamy, sexual exclusivity, and permanency. All right, marriage is monogamous, one man, one woman, it's exclusive, and it's permanent, and these make the difference for the good of our society, don't they? I mean, having men committed to their spouses and wives committed to their husbands, having that, that saves a lot of promiscuity and immorality in the world, right? A lot of trouble. When a man has obligations to provide for his home, he doesn't have a lot of time to get in trouble, right? Because he has to, he's got to provide for his home. He's got to take care of the family. And when they do that, they learn responsibility. And when you have a society doing that, you have a good society. And when that breaks down, you have the opportunities for all kinds of evil and mischief in the world. So marriage is not just good for the church. It's not just good for Christians. It's good for your neighbors. It's good for LA. It's good for the country. It's good for the world. So that's marriage in the American context. What about marriage in our Christian context? So Jesus Evaluating marriage in the Jewish context, we looked at the American context. What about in the church? Are we, we are affected by our American context, right? In, the, in, in our American churches. And so remember, going back to Matthew 5, go to Matthew 5, verse, um, I covered this in verse eight, 19. 
Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Remember that? We talked about sloppy obedience a few weeks ago. Sloppy obedience and relaxing on God's good word. Has the American church been sloppy in their obedience of divorce? I mean, the culture has been, right? Obviously. Do you think that's infected the church in ways that the church has now, in some ways, not been careful to the great and the least of the matters of the law, of God's commands, but they've actually relaxed on some things? Because, hey, everyone in the culture is doing it. They have. We have lost, in many ways, our saltiness as a people. And it says in Matthew 5, verse 13, if the salt should lose its, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Brothers and sisters, we are the salt of the earth. And in this dark and decaying context we live in, on the issue of marriage, we have an opportunity to be really salty and really bright in a dark world on the issue of marriage and divorce. Okay, so that's understand the context. You have heard it was said to those in the Jewish culture, you must write a certificate of divorce. You have heard it said here in our American context that no-fault divorce, divorce for irreconcilable differences is okay. And um, not taking your vows seriously or not even having vows is okay. And um, marriage between two consenting adults, whatever gender they are, is okay. That's what you have heard it said unto you. But what does Jesus say to us? What does Jesus say to this church and what does he say to this world? Look at verse 32. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we need to trust Jesus' call. Jesus is calling us here in verse 32 to a righteous view, support, and practice of marriage. This type of marriage view surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. It surpasses religious people, even Christian religious people. And it's what Jesus' followers need to embrace. So what is marriage then? Before we talk about this divorce and exception clause, let's, just, let's, let's go to Matthew 19 in your Bible. Go to Matthew 19. Turn to the right in your Bible, Matthew 19, 1 through 10. Or let's start in verse 2. Large crowds followed Jesus, and he healed them there. Verse 3, some of the Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? There's the question. Is it okay for no-fault divorce, any grounds, burnt toast? Is that okay? Change of heart? I just had a change of feelings. I just want to love them, and I just got to be myself. I just don't feel it anymore. I'm just not in love anymore. Is that okay? Any grounds? Jesus answers in verse 4. He goes back to the Bible. Surprise, surprise. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them what? Male and female. And, for, and he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay, so let's just stop there. Just, I need to make a comment here. Jesus is not making this point here specifically. The question isn't being asked. but So is a man and a man marriage? In God's design. No. Is a woman and a woman marriage in God's design? No. It says here, God made them male and female, and then a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus is defining marriage here um, as one man and one woman. Okay, so then verse 6. So, if they're joined and become one flesh, so they are no longer two, 
but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is interesting. I love this. In verse 6, who joins together the husband and the wife? God. Do you realize that when you're at a wedding, you're witnessing God joining them together? Not just a Christian wedding. We were at a, a Buddhist wedding. We were at a Buddhist wedding last week or two weeks ago. Um, if they're getting married, God is joining. The, God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God Almighty, God of the Bible, he joins together humans in marriage. Not just Christians. It's not a Christian thing. This is a human thing. It's a creation thing. Every legitimate marriage in this world is personally joined together by the triune God himself. Amen. Whether they believe in him or not is another story. But God is the one who joins them together. I love that. Just being at weddings, I love being there. Right there, I get to pronounce. I'm pronouncing what God has done. I, I don't join them together. I just pronounce what God has actually just done right there in front of everybody. All right, verse 7. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? All right, now is that, how would you answer that? Why did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? What, what might you say? Moses didn't, have you not read? Moses didn't command. That wasn't a, an imperative. Right? You're not reading what he actually said. But Jesus says, in verse 8, so Jesus explains Moses. He told them, Moses permitted, not commanded, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of what? Hardness. The hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. That's not the design from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for what? Sexual immorality and marries another, commits Adultery. So there you have the same repetition from Matthew 5.32. But this time he defines marriage. He goes into the reality of marriage. And he says, it must not be separated. You must not divorce. You must not separate. Except, except for what? Sexual morality. If it's not sexual morality, it is not divorce. They might have separated. They might have gotten a legal paper. But to God, to Jesus, to Christians... In reality, in truth, they are not actually divorced. Except for this. All right. So, we have here divorce not recommended or celebrated, but tolerated. And so, divorce is not an option in general, but there are extreme cases where divorce would be permitted. Okay? And so... Um, that's one reason to get a divorce is sexual morality. In the Bible, there's another reason to get a divorce. Does anyone know? Abandonment. Abandonment. Does anyone know where that is in the Bible? First yes. First Corinthians? Seven. seven. Thank you. First Corinthians 7.15. First Corinthians 7.15. Let's go there. You just listen to this verse. We're not, there's not an exposition of First Corinthians 7, but we just, I want to point this out and make sure you see it in the Bible. Jesus or the Apostle Paul here is commanding us with the authority of God himself. In verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, if, he, if the unbeliever leaves his believing spouse, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. So here's a second, maybe extension of an exception to when divorce is permitted. If one is a Christian and the other one is not, and the non-Christian decides to leave, then the brother or sister in Christ 
is, is um, permitted to divorce. And I would say, in terms of, I, this is controversial, I know, in some people's teaching, um, in terms of Christians, um, there's a debate among pastor theologians today on it. But I would say, if divorce is permitted, so is remarriage. Okay? So I would say, so some might say divorce is only permitted, but not remarriage. I would say, if the divorce is permitted, so is remarriage. Um, but the point here is, you have it for adultery, in a sense, and you have it for abandonment of the non-believing spouse. Remember Jesus said, um, or God said in Genesis 2, a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Leave and cleave and become one flesh. See that? That's marriage, right? Leave and cleave, become one flesh. Jesus' exception in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 is regarding the one flesh. You're to be one flesh, but if you, have se- if you commit sexual immorality, you are destroying the one flesh union. Or you're at least violating it, right? You're violating the one flesh union in sexual morality. On the other side, um, leave and cleave. If, a, if, if the unbelieving spouse decides to leave, he's violating the leave and cleave. He's violating the cleave process, right? The cleave thing. Leave your father and mother. Cling to your spouse. If an unbeliever decides, decides to stop clinging to their spouse, then at that as well, they're destroying the union of marriage. And in that case, it's permitted for a person to divorce. All right, so abandonment and sexual immorality or adultery, okay? And it's not necessarily recommended, it's just permitted. Does that make sense? So when people, go back to Matthew 5 now. Let's go back to Matthew 5, 32. When you misuse divorce and you divorce illegitimately, what does it cause? According to verse 32. Illegitimate divorce or... like not actual divorce, it causes the spouse to what? Commit adultery. If they remarry, quote-unquote remarry, at least legally before the state, they will be sleeping with someone even though they're not legitimately divorced before God. And therefore, they are actually committing adultery because they're actually still married before God to the other spouse or to their spouse, their original spouse, I should say, maybe for sake of clarity here. Okay, so the church... Our church must carefully teach and follow God's word on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, trusting that God is good even when he offends or abuses or he offends or rebukes us or corrects us. That's what marriage is. So marriage is not recommended. C.S. Lewis says it's not like, well, I'm gonna it's not like changing your clothes or buying a new car. Buying a new car might be a big deal for a lot of us. Divorce is not like buying a new car and, and getting rid of your old car. It's more like cutting off your legs. It might be necessary for survival, but it's not preferable, right? It's not inconsequential. It's not painless. Because if you two literally become one flesh before the Lord, to divorce is literally to cut off part of who you are. That's what's happening in divorce. That doesn't mean it can't happen. And there are, there are places, cases where, where it's permitted, you know, but it's... How often do you recommend cutting off a limb? Well, I guess in survival situations and extreme circumstances. But other than that, I just read to you the effects of divorce. And they are massive, not just for the two getting divorced, for the children, for the churches, for the society. It's a big deal. It affects everybody. All right. Now, the Bible, let's just, um, I'm going to, before I close the application, let's just, let me just talk about marriage, a bigger picture of what the Bible says about marriage. So the Bible talks about, where was the, who was the first marriage? 
Adam and Eve. So you have marriage beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God brings them together. No sin, no burdens, no faults, really. No sins in that regard. Uh, a marriage without sin or curse or brokenness. What a, what a, great, what a great marriage to be part of. Well, um, Eve eats the fruit, then Adam eats the fruit, and then they plunge us into fallenness, into sin and brokenness in this world and the curse. Then what's the next big marriage in the Bible? The next big marriage in the Bible is Yahweh, God, in the Old Testament, and he marries who? Who does Yahweh marry in the Old Testament? Anyone know? I hear someone whispering. Say it out loud, somebody. Israel. Yes, Yahweh marries Israel in the Old Testament. So if you're reading the prophets... Yahweh marries Israel. He even gives her a certificate of divorce, but remarries her and stuff like that. So you can read that in the Old Testament as well. But in the Old Testament, you have this idea, not just of Adam and Eve, but you get this strange thing that God marries his people. It's a strange way of thinking about the relationship of God and his people, but that's what God presents in the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and you get to Matthew 5, or Ephesians 5, and it talks about um, husbands, love your wives as Christ what? loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you get to Matthew or Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 and 33. And it talks about, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about your marriage primarily. You know what the real marriage is? The truest of all marriages, the marriage that God had designed from all the beginning of time? The son of God, Jesus the Messiah, with his people in union together forever. That was the original design. So when God came up with Adam and Eve and came up with the thing of marriage, marriage is not like, it's not like, and some of you might think this way, I thought this way for a long time, that Christ in the church is a good analogy of marriage. But it's, it's actually backwards. The realest, truest, deepest, actual marriage is Christ Jesus and his church. And our marriages are analogies of that marriage. So God came up with this whole institution of marriage, starting with Adam and Eve, as a preview and a picture of this great reality of the people of God being united to Jesus Christ forever in a one flesh union where we become his body. That's what we call the church, right? The body of Christ. We literally become his body. We become one with Christ forever. Now, why is this cool? Why is this a good deal? Why is this good news? This is good news because we are sinners, right? We're sinners and we deserve damnation and hell. And yet, um, what does God do? So have you, are you familiar with, I mean, you might've been familiar with fairy tales like the damsel in distress right? And the, the knight in shining armor, what does he do? He comes and he fights off the what? The dragon and he saves the girl. You know where that comes from? That comes from the Bible. That's the story of the Bible. It's the story of the people of God plunging themselves into sin and ruin because a serpent snakes his way into a garden and tricks them. This dragon with a fierce, devouring heart, tries to take the people of God and plunge them into ruin, holds them captive in his deception and lies, and they're captive to sin, the curse, and death. And so you have this great dragon deceiving and capturing this woman, God's, Christ's bride, Christ's woman. And what does Jesus do? He becomes a man. He takes on human flesh. He's born of a virgin. He lives a perfect life that we should have lived. He dies on the cross for our sins. And he rises from the dead. And he secures our forgiveness and our salvation there. And then he ascends back to heaven. 
he gives his Holy Spirit to some of his disciples to continue to spread this gospel and save the bride, to get, get the girl. So when you heard the gospel, it's Jesus gathering and saving the damsel in distress. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's Jesus saving the damsel in distress. That's the story of the Bible, that he is gathering his people. And now here we are, Christians, Bethany Baptist Church, filled with the Holy Spirit, sent to Los Angeles to get the girl because the dragon has her in prison, at least part of her still, right? And so we keep spreading the gospel. We keep sharing the gospel so that Christ, so that Christ might save his bride from death and damnation that she deserves for her sins. He does it by dying on the cross and securing salvation, in one sense dealing the fatal blow to the dragon. And yet even now, if you're in the book of Revelation, there's still a war with the dragon. There's still battles with the dragon and the beasts as Christians continue to invade the dragon's space and get the girl. So that's why sometimes I summarize the story of the Bible, according to Doug Wilson, kill the dragon, get the girl. That's the story of the Bible. That's the mission of the church. Kill the dragon, get the girl. That's what, that's what Jesus does. That's what we do as his body. We, we wage war to get the girl. And isn't that good news, that Christ saves us? Amen. It's absolutely good news, right? If you're not a Christian, I want you to realize that God has went to the furthest extent possible to save you from your sins. He has sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. He has risen from the dead, and he has paid for all of your sins if you will repent from your sins and trust in him. God even brought you here this morning to hear the gospel because he wants to free you from the dragon. But you must realize that you're a sinner, that God is holy, and that the only way God will forgive you is if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So God is calling you this morning, where you're sitting, to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. He will give you his Holy Spirit. He'll make you part of his people, and you will continue to live for him here in the battle until he comes again. And when he comes again, there's gonna be a marriage supper of the, of the Lamb, and we're gonna celebrate with him forever and ever. We're gonna take communion in a little bit, and when we take it, we read um, um, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus said when he took communion, he said, and the first Lord's Supper, he said, um, I will not drink this with you until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. So we're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it's coming. But if you're not a Christian, you're invited to the marriage supper if you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. This is surely good news. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, washing her with the water of the word. That is the gospel. All right, so let me apply it, and then we'll be done. Society, Los Angeles, California, the, the, the birthplace of no-fault divorce, California. What is God's word to California and to the United States? His word is this. No-fault divorce, this law is unrighteous, it is sinful, and it is society-destructive. It is, society is, is society-destroying. Legalizing so-called gay marriage and confusing the reality of marriage is also unrighteous, sinful, and a society-destructive law. You must change it, California. You must change it, United States of America, if you are to love your neighbors and even love your neighbors who desire no-fault divorce and so-called same-sex marriage. If you're going to love and care for them and all of our neighbors, then you must change that law. You must recognize the unrighteousness of that law, of those laws. If you're, if you're a Christian, here's the application for you. Honor marriage and rarely concede divorce. 
Encourage your non-Christian neighbors in their marriages, and by marriage I need to say here in 2018 heterosexual marriages, but that's actual marriage. Even, even encourage your non-Christian neighbors in their marriage. Pray for them. Call sinful divorces sinful to non-Christians. Let them know that there is a God who, who talks about marriage and wants good marriage for everyone. Not everyone getting married, but for everyone in society to enjoy that gift, whether they're single or married. Speak clearly in our confused city. For the church family, we must pay special care and feel the burden of our members and children under the pressure of the brokenness of divorce. Blessed are the merciful. What is it? What's another word for merciful? Blessed are the compassionate. Blessed are those who are compassionate and merciful, who see the needs and feel the deep concern and express care for those who are suffering under the pressure and brokenness of divorce. Some of them have gotten divorces. Some of them are children of divorces. Some of them are family members or friends of divorces or church members of those who've gotten divorces. Christian, church family, we need to be a caring church. If you're gonna love your neighbor as yourself, you need to understand the pressure that your neighbor is under, the brokenness that they feel as you love them and care for them, if you're gonna love them faithfully. At our church, in our church, we must build up a strong and humble and compassionate marriage culture in our church. So thank you to Sister Hannah, who took care of our kids last night so that some marriages can get together in this room and talk about and strengthen our marriages. We have a marriage reading group. Everyone's invited to that. We have a marriage reading group here last night. A bunch of us got together, and um, we talked and strengthened our marriages. And that's okay if you can't make it to that. If any members are strengthening their marriages, it affects the whole church. We're a body, Right? As you strengthen your marriage, as we strengthen a marriage culture in our church, and if you're single, you can find ways of supporting it as well, as our sister Hannah has modeled last night. Um, so, so we need to do that. We need to celebrate anniversaries. I am terrible at leading our church in celebrating anniversaries. So church family, someone step up and help us with that. Um, in our church, we need to promote marriage and demote pre-marriage dating. We need to promote marriage and demote Pre-marriage dating. What I mean by demote pre-marriage dating. What I mean by that is let's stop celebrating dating and let's call it two singles who are a brother and sister in Christ considering marriage. Marriage considered. Let's call it marriage considered. <laughs> like we call it membership considered. I don't know what to call it. But, but why, why, should we, why should we just get off of the cultural dating way of thinking about things? Why? Here's why. It keeps marriage special. It honors the actual categories of singles. They don't own each other. They're not married. It introduces a non-sexual relationship, which it is, as a pre-sexual relationship. And often in the relationship, the pre gets dropped out. And they actually commit sexual activities that are sinful. So just drop the category and let's just call it two Christians, brother and sister in Christ, who are considering marriage. If you keep it that way, you'll, you'll keep yourself, you'll, you'll have a better chance of keeping yourself on the right track in regard to pursuing marriage. If you're not a Christian, you might say, man, this sounds like some crazy, ancient <laughs> rules. It's so out of step with our culture today. It is. It is out of step with our culture today. But if you believe in a Bible where, where God is God, um, can God d disagree with us? I mean, if he's God, if God agrees with you all the time, who's God? Right? I mean, if God can only agree with us and never disagree with us, then we have to look in the mirror and ask, who is God and who's not? Who's in control? Not only that... Um, if we think, you know what, this is just so out of step, if you're going to be true to yourself, you just need to follow your heart and do what you want. Everyone should be able to be true to themselves and do what they want because there's too many personalities, too many cultures, too many religions, too many perspectives. If you believe that, 
which is popular in our culture, if you believe that individuals have the right to create their own truth and their own morals, then you never have the right to be morally outraged when someone does something you disagree with. Amen. Right? I mean, if, if someone says, if someone does something you don't like, you, you, you can't get mad because you should be saying, well, they have the right to do what they want. Well, it just doesn't work that way. Everyone has moral outrage because we all believe some things are wrong to do. You don't just get to create your own truth. There is a standard of truth. So there's nothing wrong with Christians doing that as well. And no one's free anyways. If you just want to be free from all restrictions, there is no real freedom. You're a slave of whatever your ultimate priority is. Let me say a few other pastoral words here. Children of divorced parents. Children of divorced parents. God cares for your brokenness. We all have different combinations of brokenness, and we all have to receive God's care and grace. And this is a big brokenness for many of you. You don't have to be a statistic that gets all the bad effects of divorced parents. God can heal your brokenness and walk you through that for your joy and his glory. I encourage you, if you walk with the pain of divorce, to share your pain. Let us bear each other's burdens as a church family. Let us not only celebrate your joys, let us bear your burdens. You're not being a burden on us by sharing your burden. You're being a, you, you actually become more a burden when you don't share your burdens in the church because your burden gets bigger, and then we have to deal with the blow-up later rather than earlier, right? So share your burdens. There's hope and healing in Jesus partially now and fully when he returns. Be open about your pain, your frustration, and your struggles. Children, Thank God for your parents and pray for them to keep trusting and obeying Jesus in their marriage if your parents are married. Parents, realize that your best gift to your children outside of giving them the gospel directly is strengthening your marriage. It is a lie to say, well, I'm gonna put my children above my marriage. You can't, that's impossible. To put your children above your marriage is not to put your children as a priority at all. It's to hurt your children. Uh, Spouses, husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Put your wife's preferences above your own. Wives, submit to your husbands and put his will above your own. And go to Jesus in dealing with the self-centeredness in your marriage. Guard against marriage idolatry by hungering for Christ above a good marriage. And get help for your, your marriage regularly by church members and other wise Christians. Every marriage needs help at different times. Just some marriages don't admit it. Singles, you're saying, well, that was a waste of my hour. I'm a single person. No, it's not. Singles, um, honor marriage by fighting lust in your own life and soaking up your singleness. For those desiring marriage, not all singles desire marriage, but for the singles here who do desire marriage, pursue it, if you're the guy especially, pursue it with intentionality. And if you're a sister waiting for marriage, wait patiently and continue to pursue God as you wait and pray and have others pray with you. We'd love to pray with you for that and even do a little bit of matchmaking if we could. All right, um, workers, students, honor God, honor God-designed marriage with your words at work and school. Do you guys ever, you know, guys at school, uh, at, at work, they talk about marriages, they complain about their marriages sometimes, or they'll lust after other people and be like, oh, look at that person, do you see that person? You weaken marriage if you continue that conversation. You know, just give a counter comment. If they say, hey, did you see that girl? Just be like, you know what, I see one girl, my wife, and I praise God for her. I mean, even if they're not Christian, I praise God for her. What a tremendous gift marriage is, and I just thank God for her. That just sounds weird, but isn't that a little salty in a good way? Salt of the earth, right? Or if you're single and some guy's saying that to you because that happens a lot among single guys, 
You could just you could talk about how she's made in God's, God's image and how we get to honor her and love her and care for her as men who guard and honor women. That just sounds so strange in the world, right? But that could share that could lead to sharing the gospel, pointing to Christ. If you're retired, model lifelong commitment and speak well of marriage without airbrushing it. You know, teach people even from your mistakes. Magnify Jesus, not by magnifying your marriage and your righteousness. Magnify Jesus by showing your mistakes and your successes. And show that Jesus can mess. If Jesus could work with you, he could work with anyone. That's encouraging news. So hunger for righteous marriage so that you may have God's kingdom and shine his light. Brothers and sisters, honor marriage and only strictly concede divorce. Rejoice that God made marriage permanent. Praise God that Jesus won't divorce us, right? I mean, if anyone has a, an opportunity to not call no-fault divorce, but actually blame the bride for their sins, wouldn't it be Jesus with the church? I mean, what, what church is, le- is, more fa- is less faithful than, than the church? I mean, what, what bride is less faithful than the church to Jesus? You got a perfect husband, and you got a sinful, self-centered bride constantly sinning against him and committing adultery in terms of idolatry, right? Spiritually. And yet he doesn't divorce us. Praise God for that. So brothers and sisters, if you rejoice in the permanence of marriage, in God's goodness in the permanence of marriage, you will, if you don't do that, you will unintentionally weaken righteous marriage and righteous singleness in our church. You will weaken marriage in our society and you will dishonor our Lord and his marriage to the church. If you do uphold the permanence of God and God's goodness in, or the permanence of marriage as God's goodness, you will strengthen our married couples and singles in our church. You will bless our society with the good truth about marriage, and you will honor true marriage, the true marriage of Christ in the church. To be filled with righteousness, to be filled with righteous marriage, means we must deny unbiblical divorce. That's the point of the passage. So brothers and sisters, strengthen marriage and bless our world. Strengthen marriage and bless our world. Let's pray. Father, help us to strengthen marriage. Not just those who are married, even those who are single, that we would strengthen the institution of marriage because it is the picture of the gospel. Indeed, the true marriage is the gospel. And so may we revel in that and guard the gospel even in the way we honor marriage. Change us, grow us, show us how this applies in the specifics of our lives and help us to walk together as a Christian family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.